You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to NSPS Radio Hour. Glad to have you with us today, and glad to have our guest, Tony Nettleman, with me again today. Welcome, Tony. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Kurt. I'm not really sure what may be going on in the world out there today with all the pestilence that's been going on the last couple of weeks, and of course the the latest thing being this weekend and now moving uh, up the East Coast. Uh, as a matter of fact, before you came on, Tony, David and I at the station were talking about somewhat unexpectedly the storm has shifted to the other side of the uh, of the peninsula and headed up, going to come toward Atlanta today, which I hadn't seen that in any reports at all up until just uh, maybe this morning or late last evening or something. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, We got hit by uh, Harvey just about a week or two ago here in Corpus Christi, and it closed down the entire first week of school. I've never had it happen before in my 10 years of teaching. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And I think you told me when we talked earlier, you guys got hit, but perhaps not as much as you thought you might have originally. We dodged a bullet, you know, 20 miles north of us, everything's wiped out, houses and uh, buildings and all all sorts of stuff, but Corpus Christi got it very light. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see how this thing progresses as it it heads on up. Uh, This one going on now, and who knows what's coming next. Actually, that whole concept you were talking about of postponing school and things being wiped out, um, I was talking with David before the show started, and uh, he made a comment about what does that mean when a, when something like this occurs and something so devastating and things get torn up and ripped apart. Uh, what impact does that have, for example, on on the surveying profession? You know, what how do surveyors get involved, or what 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 services do people need from surveyors after something like this? And I guess my, my thought on that initially was, well, if property corners don't get knocked out, then they don't have to reset property corners. But I guess that could happen. But certainly there's lots of other things that yeah. are taking place where surveyors are going to be needed, that's for sure. We love to build. You want new houses, new office buildings, new parking lots? We're glad to put them in for you. So there's a lot of work to be had in the rebuilding. You know, uh, a good relationship between engineers and architects and surveyors get in there and rebuild as quickly as possible because even having a few days of you know business downtime costs you know tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars it's amazing yeah and i would think probably for most of us in the surveying profession um that side of things doesn't come top of mind right away (laughs) that that your services are going to be needed Uh, in a big way when something like this happens. I mean, obviously, we're all concerned about the people who are suffering through all this, uh, and and certainly our our prayers and hopes go out for all of them and for recovery and and all those kind of things. But you're right. I mean, eventually, uh, or as soon as possible, probably in the minds of the people whose, whether it's their business or their home or whatever, uh, when, when the shock of everything is over with and people have to start thinking about that right away it's not like you that not not something you can you can postpone yeah absolutely it's amazing uh we took off my family and i took off several days before harvey came just not to get trapped in corpus christi there's one road in one road out so we left and went north 
and we were working on my in-laws' uh, dining room table for a week. And, you know, it's amazing the disruption, even without a direct hit, takes on everybody because we have to keep going. There's, you know, no stopping, but you've got a crisis to deal with in the middle. Absolutely. And the the thing that I think is, is most astonishing is is transportation. Of course, that's another element that when transportation gets interrupted, what, if, if roads get washed out and bridges and that kind of thing, then obviously that's part of what, uh, part of all that rebuilding is part of surveying. But, but when you just think about uh, when you saw all those lines of people leaving town the other day, um, and pretty soon there's no gas, I, I'm just, it makes you wonder how many people actually ended up getting stranded because there's no gas to buy, there's nowhere to go, the roads get blocked. Absolutely. You know, uh, we have a hurricane kit in our apartment. We have a, a back apartment. We keep, you know, 50 gallons of gas, 50 gallons of potable water, you know, a red bag with all kinds of stuff. So we cruised out in, you know, no problem. But I was talking to a w- woman at the gas station uh, the night before, and she says, well, couldn't be that bad. You know, uh, how bad is a hurricane class one? Well, that got upgraded from a class one to a class four in about three hours, and then there was a huge run in the gas station. And the grocery stores had no water, no Gatorade, nothing to drink. So, you know, you just don't think of the crazy stuff that happens because a lot of times people don't plan. They just sort of figure it'll work out. Yeah, that's true, and, and I guess in some ways that's probably more more prevalent uh, in our minds than we like to think it is, <laughs> regardless of what the situation is. You know, whether it's whether it's an impending storm or you know what's coming next uh, uh, in our lives. I, I think I'm I'm not I'm saying this maybe from more personal experience, <laughs> but just just the whole idea of of uh, thinking of and making those plans ahead. You get so caught up in the moment of something like that. I, I think sometimes it prevents you from thinking straight or logically maybe absolutely i totally agree with you so have you uh have you heard from your grandfather over in atlanta is he uh all set for this thing oh he doesn't really care he has his uh is well i can't see that you know he really enjoys the uh matlock and murder she wrote so if they <laughs> if the tv power goes out we're gonna have a major problem but otherwise i think i think they're pretty well set uh, I know that it's coming up, but I think it'll be pretty light winds, you know, 45, 60 miles an hour. But yeah. I shouldn't say that because we had, a, we had a hurricane come through years ago, and it took out his entire house. It dropped oh, a wow. tree on the length of his house, so it destroyed the roof beams and the supports and everything else. So he was one, un- he was one unhappy camper, we'll put it that way. Oh, my goodness. Did he rebuild in the same spot? Yeah, you know, I told him just to sell the lot and get rid of it. it. You know, it was an okay house, but it wasn't worth rebuilding. And he says, I'm, I've been here for 50 years. I'm not going anywhere. I'll die here. <laughs> well, okay, fine. That's your. That's totally your choice. Yeah, well, we'll hope for the best for him and everybody else in, in the area and, and obviously the best for those people who have already been hit. It was pretty some, aston- some pretty astonishing um, images yesterday when they were trying to keep track of what was going on on all the – the TV networks, and um, just just amazing, really, to see what was happening out there. That's another thing that David and I were talking about this morning. Maybe you can you can uh, talk about this a little bit. The whole idea of sort of a, a reversal of in a in a harbor 
or in a bay where the waters all went out. Yeah, that's you... fascinating. I've seen that before in tsunamis and other big storms where the, the water gets sucked out and then gets comes back in as a storm surge. And, yeah. you know, I wish I knew more about how that worked. It's really fascinating. It is. And, and honestly, I hadn't really ever thought about it, to tell you the truth, um, of, of that phenomenon actually occurring. And I guess it's maybe not all that uncommon in, in these major storms like this, but just the, the thought of it. And then I think there were, I heard some reports of people thinking it was such a cool thing they wanted to, they went out in the bay to see what was going on, which probably wasn't a really good idea. I don't know what, yes. what the timing of something like that is or, or what conditions have to occur again uh, for the water to come back. But Yeah, it's amazing. I, I went to a uh, I went to um, Oregon I think it was Oregon State or Oregon Tech up in um, Corvallis for the Sages meeting, the surveyors, educators, and they have a giant um, uh, tsunami tank they test out tsunamis on and they said many of the poorer countries the people would run out into the bay to catch the fish because the fish are flopping on the ground when the water goes out and then while thousands or hundreds of people are out in the bay catching the fish the water comes back and killed all of them oh wow yeah unbelievable stuff you never even think of no no certainly not I mean certainly not people who grew up like me in the in the mountains where pretty sure that's <laughs> no not gonna happen there. <laughs> yeah. 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 As a matter of fact I think in, in my home area the only time that I can recall a hurricane actually having a major impact was Hugo uh, back in the late eighties. And uh, the winds came up across the top of the Blue Ridge and blew a few forest downs but down but um, that's the closest that anything like that ever hit back in, in that part of the world. And so we all have our, our uh, different things to think about, and I guess we all have our, our different disasters as, as they occur. And speaking of disasters, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, make mention of the fact that today is the anniversary of 9-11. Um, Absolutely. It's hard, it's hard to believe it's been that many years ago, and it's been sort of interesting over the last few days to hear uh, some of the conversation about uh, heroic deeds that people did that you'd never heard about before. Um, and I, I think it's all really just part of the the, the strength of, of human nature in general, where for the most part people do want to help. Sometimes we're a bit confused about how we're, how we're going to help. Um, but I think everybody, uh, or most people, have a, a thought that they'd like to, to do good things or even heroic things if they had the opportunity, and some people are able to do that. So, uh, Absolutely, it, uh, and he, volunteering and helping out. It's amazing. People are still affected today, and you know, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind for most of us. But the first responders and the people who were there are still dealing with the effects. You know, so many years later, it's a long time. Yeah, and, and speaking of volunteering and bringing it kind of back into the surveying arena, that's one of the things that I've always been proud of of our profession. Uh, it seems as the type of people who tend to come into surveying as a profession, for the most part, have that same kind of spirit in them, uh, wanting to help other people. And, and I, I've often said, you know, I, I didn't go into the ministry as my dad did because I just it wasn't a way for me to go. But 
but it, it, I found another way to help people with with things that are important to them through surveying. And and I, I, as I meet surveyors from all over the country and even around the world, I'm always uh, uh, impressed by the the thoughts in surveyors' minds that they they exist on the earth either through their own benevolence as individuals or through their profession to help other people. I, I think that says a lot for for our profession. So do I. You know, it, it's not a job or, you know, it's really a lifestyle or a calling, I like to say. So people spend a lot of time with their state societies, a lot of time helping out universities and other kinds of academic programs. I think, you know, as surveyors, we really donate much more of our time as a percentage than a lot of others, no doubt. Yeah, I would agree with that, and and I'm proud of that for for the people that are part of our profession. It makes you feel good to to be amongst people who feel that way, and not only feel that way, but act, actually act that way and and uh, reach out to help their fellow man. Well, we're about ready to go to break here, so we'll come back and get on topic here uh, in just a couple of minutes. Thank you. Quick stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have quick stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying quick stakes. Did you know that quick stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? Lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick stakes, your back friendly stake. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. As we were going to break, we were talking about uh, the events of the last couple of weeks. And, and just before we came back from break, Tony, you were talking about this. I think this is kind of indicative, and it sort of fits into the whole idea of planning and what surveyors do. But, but you were talking about someone you knew or a client that had built in a not-so-good place in the Naples area. Maybe you could tell about that. Sure. Uh, you know, I have a client uh, several years ago who owns a, a beautiful house. It's actually three houses connected to each other. I think it was something like 15,000 square foot plus. And wow. the entire community is built on filled land in the ocean, in the bay, within a foot or two of sea level. And these are multi, multi, multi-million dollar homes. And they're so at risk. It, it's amazing. Now, thank you, Uncle Sam, for flood insurance, you know, but 
you have to think about, you know, what's going to happen or what could happen and then make your plans. Absolutely. And, and again, that's where people like us can be helpful. Um, that's not to say our clients will always listen to us, of course, but, but at least uh, share what knowledge we have of, of those type of things so they, they understand what their risks are, that's for sure. Um, you know, again, that's part of the, of the reaching out part. So um, yeah, one of the things we want to talk about today, in addition to what we've already discussed, is you recently uh, did an assessment of ABIT accredited programs. And that sort of was a springboard for us to start a conversation about uh, accreditation, the, the, the educational process, uh, kind of the whole study, if you will, of what the programs are doing. Uh, maybe you can begin to talk about that a little bit, and we'll, we'll progress as we go through the show. Absolutely. Let's just see where we end up. We always have way too many conversations than time, but we'll see what yeah, we can do. True. And, you know, it's interesting, a, a very great person, D. Edgar, is our secretary at A&M Corpus Christi. And she helped me, you know, telephone or email pretty much every ABET accredited university that offers a four-year surveying degree. So ABET accredited four-year surveying degrees. And we wanted to figure out, well, how are these guys doing? You know, uh, what's their student enrollment? How many faculty members part-time and full-time do they employ? Uh, how many credit hours does it take to graduate? And also, what type of program is it? Because ABET has, you know, accredited engineering, accredited technology, accredited uh, applied science. And it's amazing to think that we don't have this already. Because when I went to law school, there's probably a million websites which will tell you all about your prospective university you know, graduation rates, tuition, number of faculty, if the faculty publish papers, you know, uh, what hair color the, you know, administrator has. I mean, the, the data is just unlimited. And same thing for like civil engineering programs or forestry programs. Maybe not quite as much as law schools, but there are lots of online resources. But there's not a single online resource to compare surveying programs in the country right now. Amazing. So is that, how is that done? Is that done through the, the uh, like NSPE or the, the, the uh, legal profession association or does some group of people or some school decide they want to do an analysis kind of like you did uh, uh, with what you did or how, how does that occur? Well, you know, it primarily occurs through, you know, for-profit companies, and they want to sell ad space or they want to sell access to these databases. So they have a team of people. Uh, one of the most common is the U.S. News Reports. They do all universities, it seems like, not just law schools. And you can get some data for free, but if you want to know more about your prospective school, you know, pay 5 or 10 bucks and get full access for a month. So it's really, uh, you know, independent, third-party, for-profit companies that really do most of this collection and analysis. So it's it's not done as uh, just a data gathering process. It's done as a, a commercial process. Um, yes, sir. So even at that, then, okay, you you were talking. Somebody decides to do this as a as a for-profit enterprise. Um, so if I'm understanding you correctly, even 
under that circumstance, nobody has decided to do this for surveying programs. Not that I can find. Uh, you know, you can locate the university information on these websites, like, you know, how many students are enrolled at, you know, um, Old Dominion or Georgia Tech. But there's really no surveying program data online to compare apples to apples. And that was kind of surprising to me. But, you know, as a student of several surveying programs myself, I think I had very little information about the program. You know, uh, I joined New Mexico State, so I found Steve Frank at a conference in high school. He said, come to New Mexico, it's great. And I said, okay, I'll see you in two months. That was my, you know, uh, weighing of universities. And maybe that's the, the normal way. Uh, and perhaps that may be part of our, our dilemma, or at least perceived dilemma, in terms of numbers of students and candidates for licensure and and those kind of things is that the marketing side, however that's supposed to occur, uh, hasn't hasn't been available. And in your case, it was really not so much about yeah, there's a program that exists. It was about what's what's that program actually offering someone? Absolutely, and you know, you want to know more things like well, what's the tuition annually, or how many you know different stuff like that you can find online, no problem. But if you wanted to compare, say, New Mexico State to Texas A&M Corpus Christi, well, that's kind of tough to do. You have to gather the data for each university yourself, somehow make some standard metrics, and then do your comparison. Well, a lot of students aren't that sophisticated, and it's tough to make decisions. Uh, same thing for faculty. You know, do you want to, you know, stay at your university or do you want to go somewhere else? Well, I would look at the biggest programs and make a phone call and say, hey, You've got seven faculty members. If one of them decides to retire or you need someone else, call me. So, you know, faculty decisions, student decisions, all these groups of people need a central, free, online database to make their choices. So, and was that your intent when you started this assessment to provide something like that? Well, you know, my intent was to see how we're doing at A&M because uh, one of my superiors always says, um, well, how can you, you don't get any money because uh, you, you don't have a big enough population or you don't get that, you know, no more equipment for you because you spent X dollars and you guys have, you know, 85 students. Well, now I come back and I say, well, guess what? We're the second biggest surveying program in the country. So maybe we need more more stuff, not less. And, you know, that kind of, you know, bring silence to the room. <laughs> so it was really more of a, a, a very, um, I guess, um, personal reason. But I figured if I'm going to do this, I might as well, you know, give it away because other people at other universities probably want the same thing. Right. I'm, I'm sure they do. So is the plan to um, make this available, like, something we might post on our website, or how, how are you planning to make it available? Absolutely. Uh, it's going to go live on my website, the cnettleman.net, and also hopefully the A&M Corpus Christi website. But, you know, you guys are welcome to take the data and use it on yours or link to it. But we'd like to get it in the hands of anyone else. And it's going to be a kind of a multi-year effort because it sure would be great to have a trend, you know, say, well, is this program growing or shrinking? 
So maybe every year do the same study and get some baselines going for comparison. That's the real ultimate goal right now. I see. So in doing this, uh, gathering all this information, um, are, is part of the effort reaching out to those instructors in the other schools and getting data from them? Uh, or is it all just mined through whatever public information is out there? Well, it, in a perfect world, all these programs would have their data posted online and current because that's an ABET requirement. You know, the, any ABET surveying program has to have their current enrollment and their past graduation data posted as part of their accreditation. But unfortunately, only about one in 10 universities had that. So it was really more of a phone call, email kind of deal, which is, took me about five or six months. But luckily, uh, D. Edgar was the person making a lot of phone calls. So it's really a lot more personal than you would think. Well, that's interesting as, a, as the requirement part. How do you, how do you maintain your accreditation? If, is, is that a fairly low bar that people have to meet just to say, well, I've done this, or is it intended to be more comprehensive? Well, you know, it's supposed to be more comprehensive. You know, ABET looks at, you know, faculty skills and qualifications, current classes, um, feedback from students, and also dictates some basic things like putting the ABET wording on the website and including the enrollment. But, you know, accreditation only comes up every five or seven years. So, you know, if you have someone come in and you're in between accreditation cycles, well, maybe it's not quite as up-to-date. And uh, part of our job, I'm an ABET accreditor, is to try to help people know what those requirements are. And do you, you work with, uh, with Jason uh, for the survey programs, Jason Reset that, that manages our part of it? Or are you more on the engineering um, side? Well, I'm on, uh, Jason is actually uh, the NSPS liaison to ABET right now. And right. he somehow, I'm not sure who, maybe it was you or maybe it was Jason who found me last year and, and convinced me to become an accreditor. And it's very, very fun things to do. Because, you know, if you know the rules backwards and forwards and you're applying those rules to other programs, well, you take all that knowledge back with you to your school and make sure they're in, you know, real good compliance because it's all, it would be pretty embarrassing to be an ABET evaluator and then have something come up on your own school visit. So it's really uh, helped me a lot uh, with my own university. And it's fun to meet a lot of people because if you travel around, you get to see other universities and other faculty and, you know, build a much stronger relationship than you would just seeing them every two years at Sages. Right. Yeah, and, and I would agree with that. And, and now that you mention that, I know at some point Jason and I had, would have had a conversation when he was trying to, to bolster the team. And, and I, the last I talked to him, which wasn't all that long ago, uh, he feels pretty good about the team. But it's one of those things that you have to keep building because, as you know, you – once you've gone to a school, you can never go back. So you got to you got to keep having qualified people, and I think that's the the big the big push is to try to get the strongest folks we can find to to be in that group and people who have that enthusiasm for it, just as as you have expressed. So as we move forward, um, it it is a really important thing to do, and 
not only assessing the schools that are there, but maybe to encourage others to do it. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit when we come back from the break. We're, we're ready to go to break again. Sounds great. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Quick Stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have Quick Stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying Quick Stakes. Did you know that Quick Stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? Lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick Stakes, your back-friendly stake. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. As we were going to break, we were talking about uh, schools and the valuation of the schools and ABET and what have you. And, of course, one of the issues that's always there is level of faculty and, and uh, qualifications and that type of thing. On the, during the break, uh, for the audience, Tony and I were talking about that a little bit and um, there seems to be a, a dilemma, maybe the right word, I don't know, but, but certainly uh, a situation where we have hardly any people available, uh, domestic folks available, um, to, to fit into that category that the schools are looking for. And as I mentioned during the break, Tony, one of the things I hear from, from our membership uh, and from the, uh, the profession in general is that is it really necessary? And you, having all the credentials you do, I think you have some 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 good, pretty good insight into this. Uh, is it necessary that all of our instructors actually be PhDs, or is there another reason that that that's the only people that are getting hired? So I'll just leave it at that and let you pick up. That's a great word, you know, a dilemma or a concern, and that's it. Definitely is because um, we know that it's tough to fill surveying or geospatial professor positions. It's really tough. We had a uh, faculty member, our program coordinator, uh, leave over the summer at A&M, 
and he was essential in you know stuff like administrative stuff, teaching classes, research. He got a job offer from British Petroleum. I mean, you know, Mother Teresa wouldn't turn down that job offer. So we you know, <laughs> gave him a thumbs up as he walked out the door and told him good luck. Uh, but filling that role, and his wife was an instructor, so he was a professor. His wife was an instructor in our program. So we lost two people out of six in 24 hours. Crisis. And just imagine if you're a three-person uh, faculty and you lose one or two. So one of the things the study found was that, you know, these surveying programs are in really tenuous positions because if one out of three people leave, you've just taken on 50% more classes, 50% more research, dangerous. And a, a real uh, possibility is why don't we hire an instructor, a master's level person to teach the classes, which is a great idea. Um, but I think a lot of people that advocate for reducing the qualifications of a professor, they don't realize that research, that universities don't run through teaching classes. Universities run through research dollars and papers published. And if you want to do heavy research and you want to publish papers, you've got to have that PhD. So, you know, we think of universities as teaching institutions, and some are. But the majority of big universities are not about teaching. They're about research, and teaching is the side gig. So that's kind of the hiccup in reducing qualifications, if it will. Well, that's interesting when you made that statement about the big universities are, are doing that type of activity. Would that perhaps lend itself to say that if faculty were available and if the schools weren't major universities that are have other goals, um, would that lend itself perhaps more to creating surveying programs where your instruction is um, through people who are not necessarily PhDs, uh, where the environment may be better for, for a surveying-type program. And then I guess the follow-up to that is, if that were true, would that be have any negative impact on being able to maintain uh, accreditation? You know, you read my mind, Kurt, because uh, at A&M here, we have, we're going to be an emerging research institution, which means you better make as much money and publish as many papers as possible and then double that and do and do that too. So they built, so there's an instructor, which is a master's level teacher. And then there's a professor whose primary goal is research and money. Well, A&M built kind of a hybrid. They said, let's make a PhD level teacher. So your job is only to teach, no research. So you're kind of in the middle between a professor and an instructor. And that's what I am. I teach, I only teach classes, eight classes per year. But could we go to a smaller university, say um, a state university is not quite as um, ambitious in terms of research and have those programs run there? Absolutely. You know, uh, Troy University has a great program. Uh, they have, they mainly focus on teaching, serving students and research is their side gig. And I think that may be a much better option 
for many surveying students because the focus is on the student and the research is really kind of in the background. So when, you, when you're in a situation where, and, and, and I agree with you on that, by the way, uh, Troy and other schools, there are other schools doing, doing that very well as, also, but I guess just thinking back to school, and that's 50 years ago, <laughs> no, not quite, but <laughs> a long time ago. Um, but Did you it, walk six it, miles in the snow? Uh, some days, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that included my paper route too. So, um, but but nonetheless, um, I was what I was thinking about was in the situation where you have the the researchers, and you're still trying to get the the, the instruction going. Does that end up being being then that you're and regardless of the curriculum, it's not necessarily surveying, but could be surveying. Does that mean you're, that you're PhD researcher is focusing on that all the time, and then there's somebody else between that person and the student who is a um, there's a term for the for the position I'm thinking about, ad, not an adjunct, but um, maybe an instructor or a teaching or assistant. maybe a graduate a graduate level student or something that's doing the teaching. Do you see that? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, some people do this really well. You know, they integrate their research into their classes. So as the research is being done, the students are learning the latest and the greatest. They're ahead of the curve, and they're actually helping with the research. And uh, Rick Smith, our program coordinator here, he had a couple of research labs, and the undergraduate students were employed. So many of the students were working on the research. Pretty cool stuff. But other times, it could be where there's a graduate assistant or someone else um, in between the professor and the students. And it, it just depends on the professor's style and also the requirements of the university. Because if you're being pushed to publish, you know, X number of papers per year or not get tenure, well, research is going to be the number one goal, unfortunately. And it's just a, you know, a symptom of, the, of how it works. So as, a, as an ABET evaluator, program evaluator in ABET, um, are the instructions for reviewing programs, um, I guess they're different, obviously, depending on, on what the school is doing, but I, yep. I guess there's some uniform level of what people have to be doing. So if I'm understanding correctly, a school doesn't have to be research-oriented in order to be accredited. Not at all, not at all. You know, there are many programs like Troy who are not research-oriented, and we like that because, um, you know, we focus on outcomes. The, the school sets some outcomes like the student will be able to do X, Y, Z, and as long as those outcomes are met, we're, we're very happy. So we're really focused on delivering skills, knowledge to students, and there's a whole system in place uh, teaching evaluations, course evaluations, faculty surveys, industry surveys, and all of those uh, sources tell us at ABET whether the school is meeting outcomes or not meeting outcomes. And that, if your research, if your teaching, doesn't matter. Just meet your outcomes and you're in good shape. So the outcomes aren't predetermined by ABET. They're established by the program or by the school. That's right. They're established by the school because every school is different, and they're vetted by ABET. 
So they have to be outcomes for the student when they graduate and also outcomes for the professional. So in three to five years after graduation, what's going to happen? Well, you should be licensed. Uh, you should be uh, donating your time to the surveying community, all this stuff the school sets. And these are outcomes for the students and outcomes after graduation. And we measure both. And that, I think that's a really important point for our conversation because I can't speak for the way everybody thinks. But my, my sense of things is when you talk to people about accreditation, for example, and about the whole ABET scheme, I think some people tend to look at that as sort of a monolithic thing where you've got this yep. bar that everybody's got to reach, um, and then people say, well, I can't do that. But that we'll really is what you're what saying. To do and you, yeah, we'll tell you what to do, and you better do it. That's not the scheme. You know, the school tells us what they want to achieve. You know, what are your aspirations for your students? What are your aspirations for your graduates? And we'll help you set up a system so you can track those things in real time and say, you know what, these classes are really contributing well to those outcomes. But a couple of these classes, something's kind of falling short maybe. Or possibly, you know, you want to make sure the students know about geodesy but you don't have a geodesy professor that's qualified. That could be a problem. So we really help the schools, you know, phrase their standards, measure the standards, and just make sure that everything is operating well from year to year. Yeah, that, that makes an awful lot of sense. And, and so then as you're looking at the programs, uh, sometimes I, I hear the, the argument and, we're only a minute and a half from break, so we'll have maybe pick up on this when we come back. But, you know, I, I, I hear the I hear the argument that well, you know, that whole ABET thing that's not worth doing because it's too stringent, and and that isn't necessarily the case. I mean, the 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 real deal is you figure out what you want to be, and then what ABET does is determine whether or not you are doing the things to help you be whatever that is. Right. You know, we're partners with all the universities, and it's expensive and it's time-consuming, you know, no doubt. And that's a high bar for some smaller universities to meet. But, you know, think of what you can get with it. Just about every state in the country says, if you have an ABET degree, we'll take it. Even Louisiana, who's, you know, who fights with everybody. ABET degree, come on in. And that's a huge um, help when you have... 50 different boards for 50 different states. There's got to be standardization, and ABIT helps that a lot. Right. Well, when, when we come back, let's talk a little bit about levels of degrees and and the discussion that people have all the time about, well, for my state, we only need this level of degree or a two-year versus a four-year or whatever. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that as well because – People are getting desperate now because we don't have enough surveys. They're trying to figure out how to get more. So we'll let's go to break. We'll talk about it when we come back. Sounds great. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number. 
888-253-0387 or go to quickstake.com. That's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Quick Stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have Quick Stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying Quick Stakes. Did you know that Quick Stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden steak. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick Steaks, your back-friendly steak. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. back with our last segment today with Tony Nettleman and having a great conversation about universities, uh, accreditation, studies, all those kind of things. And uh, as always, one thing in the conversation leads to another. And uh, where I was going to go next, Tony, was this, this idea of the understanding that education is is. Be- is required now. I won't even say becoming required. <laughs> it is required to be able to function with all the things that are out there, and that doesn't demean all the things we learn about how we uh, process data in our minds or how we react and, and evaluate information that we gather. It really has more to do with understanding the information that you do gather and the t- and the tools you do it with. Um, but that all that brings back the thought then about uh, we have a lot of two-year schools out out there. Uh, and I would like to hope that all of them are somehow connected to a four-year school if their students want to go there, or perhaps sometimes the schools are intended to get to a certain level of education, and in some states that's all all that's needed, um, although that's becoming more rare. So I I was going to ask the question about two-year schools versus four-year schools, but before we go there, the thought came, as we discussed briefly there during the break, about feeder schools. You know what? What's how is that working? And are there lots of people developing arrangements where that can occur? And then I guess on the back side of that, <laughs> excuse me, if you're working through feeder schools, and so people aren't coming to your school to be there for four years, how does your administration feel about that? Yeah, it's a tough question. You know, 
education is too expensive. I saw something, there's, there's $1.4 trillion in outstanding student loans. Insane. And why is it so expensive? Because universities hire tons of administrators, and they create layers and layers and layers and more layers of administravia. So, you know, I would caution any student about weighing the costs and benefits of a university degree. And I'm a professor. That's hard to believe. But, you know, feeder schools, two-year programs are great because it's much cheaper tuition. The faculty are focused on teaching, not on research. And it's uh, sometimes um, uh, as good or better instruction. So in a perfect world, we would have a student come into a two-year school, get an associate's, come to our four-year program for the last two years, and it would be a very smooth process. You know, classes transfer over, paperwork is done. But what I found out when I came to Texas was that it was kind of a, um, a one-off thing. A student would show up with his paperwork, we would review his classes, and we would connect his classes with our classes to give him credit. And this was a case-by-case basis. I said, that's crazy, because there's only six community colleges that offer surveying in Texas. Why don't we make a map, and we'll map out every community college course for surveying in each of these programs, and we'll give them a one-page document, and they simply look at their class they took at, say, Tyler Junior College, and it connects directly to our class in Corpus Christi, and there's no paperwork, there's no decisions to be made, just check the box and you get the class. And that's called an articulation agreement. And those have been huge drivers of numbers for our school. Well, it sounds like a a good way. And again, going back to the the dark ages when I was in school, but that was kind of the the path I took. I was out of school three years before I went to college and, and, and in Virginia, we have a community college system, and the one that was near where I live was connected to Virginia Tech. So it, I, don't, I don't even know that those agreements still exist <laughs> uh, for for a particular curriculum anymore, but back then it did. And everything transferred. I, I think I had out of, I don't know, 105 credits or whatever it was, maybe two didn't transfer or something like that. So that's the kind of thing you're talking about. And, and, and I, does, It's great. How much coordination does that require between the feeder school and and the, and the oh, parent? Not the right word, but the, the school that's being fed, the consumer school. Yeah, the big um, fish and the little fish, we'll call them. In, in terms of the the curriculum base, do you, do you work? Well, do you have you to know, work together, or or are they able to create the the things that are important for them, and then that still works with you? Well, you know, being an attorney, I like contracts. So I drafted a contract, a template, and you just filled in the name of the school, and we put in a matrix for their class versus my class. And I would just call them and say, you know, hey, I've got this idea. Do you want to sign on? And, of course, the two-year professors would say yes because they want more students too. And we, I flew up there in my little plane to meet with most of them to talk about how this would work, had lunch with them, got to know them. So getting the agreement is simple, but getting it signed by the 13 different, you know, vice presidents of the university 
is much more complicated. And in some cases, after two years, I just gave up and said, if you bring me a student from your program, I'm the one who approves it, so I'll approve all these classes. So making it was easy. Getting it approved by both universities was the tough part. And I'm assuming that had something to do with perceived autonomy or whatever the case may be. Right. I think, you know, I think a lot of big universities may be nervous about letting, you know, promoting sending kids to another school before they come here. They could come to the big university for all four years. And why go to the smaller schools? Well, you know, for me, I say it's cheaper. It's more local to where the kids live. Uh, It's also a better choice because um, you've got associates and be terminal, go to work, or they can choose to continue on. There's no, it's two years plus two years. It's not four years or nothing. But it could be seen as a threat because we are taking business away from our university and giving it to somebody else. That's kind of scary to some people. Yeah, and and I can understand where that would be the case. Although I think in the long run, if you've got six feeder schools, that doesn't give you people for all your uh, freshman and sophomore classes, but it certainly gives you people at the at the upper end. Um, Absolutely. So it, it seems that 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 would be part of the equation as well, and. Uh, so I guess maybe another thing that that is popular to talk about today, and I've actually had uh, people on the radio show talking about this, but I'm interested in your perspective on it too, uh, the, the alternative perhaps to the feeder school option or even to the residence option is the whole concept that's, that's picking up more steam. It's not a new phenomenon at all, but it's certainly picking up steam is, is the whole distance learning uh, issue. It's good stuff, you know offering classes online anytime, you know, you have 15 weeks of stuff to go through. If you can do that in five weeks, finish the class. So there's no set times to come. There's no set deadlines for work. It's really a a great way to deliver content. But, you know, teaching and delivering online classes are totally different from live classes. And that can be a real uh, learning curve for teachers and professors yeah I, I can see where that would be because it's there, you don't necessarily have that face-to-face interaction with with folks for sure uh, although there seems to be some some places that are doing that pretty effectively I, uh, I think we chatted once before off off air uh, even before today about uh, the one school that People are sort of standing up now as an example of distance learning as the one out at Great Basin. And and I know it got accepted in Alabama by the board. Um, the last, I think I heard that too. Yeah, the last I'm on the advisory team at Troy, and in our last meeting, which was over a year ago or close to a year ago, it was announced that, that the Great Basin program had been approved for sitting for fundamentals in, in Alabama. So... Whatever it is that's happening there seems to be uh, working, at least in that particular case. I'm not sure how many other states that that has has taken place, but it seems to be working to that to get to that level. And it's a great idea, you know, having a lot of students these days, or people who want to be students, are working professionals. They have families and kids, and it 
you just can't take four years out of your life to go sit at a, at a classroom. And it's we have a whole kind of untapped market uh, for surveyors waiting to get educated because they want the education. They just can't afford it or they don't have the time to go in there. So I think, yeah. you know, distance education is a big thing. I mean, it's going to be a big thing, I should say. Well, I know uh, when we, you and I first started talking about doing the show, we were talking about the decline in the number of exam takers. And, and, and you know, my thought on that is now, well, maybe they're already working for you as surveyors. Absolutely. Um, they, they just don't have any way to get that education or, or limited opportunities that hopefully are going to be turning around because they're interested enough to be working. So you would think there would be an interest in reaching the professional level as well if that opportunity is made available. Sure. And, you know, with the declining number of surveyors, some people say, well, lower the standards, lower the standards. Well, if we lower the standards and they get fewer number of surveyors, it's going to be like a death spiral. So we've got to think of innovative ways to grow the profession, not the easy way of lowering the bar to get a license. Because we're professionals. You know, we have a standard. And when we have too few surveyors, we shouldn't lower it just to get more people in. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that because you you don't want to to whether or not it's true you don't want to perceive to have said uh, okay we, we'll just lower these standards now because you don't really need them to do what we do. <laughs> uh, I mean that, that 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 sounds like going backwards for sure. Absolutely. So you know, promoting the profession, public knowledge of the profession, perception—all those things are important. And if people know about what we do and know how great the profession is, it's the best-kept secret ever. So then we'll start growing numbers and also helping people pass the exams. Uh, you know, it's amazing. I built a prep course for the FS and PS exams a couple of years ago. And before that, there were almost no resources available to help people, you know, what's on this exam? Well, you may be very smart, but if you're in the dark, you know, good luck getting your license. Yeah. That's very true, and and getting that help is so essential, um, regardless of whatever the method is to get to licensure. But but you're right; it's it's a it's a daunting task to go in without anybody helping you. So, believe it or not, we're 30 yep. seconds away from being done with the show today. So I certainly don't want to miss this opportunity to thank you for joining me again. It's always interesting to have you on the show, and and we always talk about really neat stuff. So I'm I'm really glad you were able to join me today had a great time. I really appreciate the opportunity for the hour, and I encourage everyone to download the uh, show on the MP3s and listen to them I sit on Saturdays and listen to three or four shows at a time. Great. Well, thanks again, Tony. I really appreciate it. Thank Take you care. For... Talk to you soon. Goodbye. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.